0: You're listening to a podcast from the BMJ. Welcome to the BMJ podcast. This week we hear about the Netherlands' experience of memory clinics.
1: Well, the research question was whether it was more effective to be guided by memory clinics compared to GPs in the first period after diagnosis compared to quality of life of the patients and caregiver stress.
0: But before that... A head-to-head and poll on bmj.com this week looks at childhood vaccination, should it be mandatory or not. Paul Offit, Chief of Infectious Diseases at the University of Pennsylvania School of Medicine, argues yes, whilst David Salisbury from the UK's Department of Health argues no. Currently David's in the lead in the poll, so go to bmj.com to vote. Paul Offit is no stranger to the vaccine debate, He's also written a book, Deadly Choices, How the Anti-Vaccine Movement Threatens Us All, which is a potted history of vaccine scares through the years. Earlier, I caught up with him to ask him a little bit more about it. Paul, it was striking in your book the similarity to how various different vaccine scares over the years have played out.
2: I think they play out. Similarly, you could even go back as far as just as I do in the book, to the first smallpox vaccine and fears that it would turn people into cows, or at least that they would develop cow-like features. And I think at the heart of it is is the notion that vaccines are mandated, that we ask people to get them or else they have to pay some sort of societal price, whether it's a fine or that they don't get to go to the school they want to go to or they don't get the job that they want. That's what seems to push people more than anything, is that they're required to do it.
0: And, I mean, looking at those parallels and seeing how they play out, and the same story seems to happen over again, you know, there's a sort of speculative paper, I'm um, quite often a doctor involved, and at least a bit of a, a media thing. Do you think public health or vaccination people kind of fail to learn the lessons?
2: Yeah, I think they, they did learn the lesson at some level. In, in other words, when protest this vaccine Emerged in the early 1980s, it took 10 years to do the epidemiological studies that, that addressed the question, meaning look at at hundreds of thousands of children who either did or didn't get the whooping cough vaccine to see whether there was an increased risk of permanent brain damage, and there wasn't. But it took it took a long time to do those studies. When Andrew Wakefield's publication came out into the Lancet those studies were begun almost immediately. I mean, there were a number of studies that were done and done quickly, probably the most um, influential of which which, and the quickest of which was Brent Taylor's study, ironically also out of the uh, the Royal Free Hospital. I mean, I was an infectious disease fellow in the early 1980s. I remember the pertussis care. Uh, And the the sense among the the academic or or medical community was, this is silly, whooping cough itself doesn't cause permanent brain damage. Why would, you know, a, a, a killed cooping call for, for, for to tell pertussis bacteria through that. I mean it doesn't make any biological sense, so therefore it's silly and it was kind of dismissed. But you know, but it got gained tremendous steam. I think the anti vaccine movement in America, you know, gained tremendous ground there because they do how to appeal to people's fears, especially through that movie D P T vaccine roulette. So it took ten years to do the study. That wasn't true here. What happened with MMR was, it was a paper that was published out of a very good hospital, the Royal Free Hospital, in a very good journal the Lancet. I think the media reasonably could assume that there was vetting, that, that you know, the reviewers had reviewed it and had considered it to be worthy, that the editor-in-chief had looked at those reviews and considered it to be worthy. In, in a sense, I, I don't blame the media. I, I could understand where they would think there must be something to this, or else why would it be published? The minute that happened, it was very hard to unring the bell.
0: Of course. Now, um, I thought it was interesting in your book when you were talking about how not all anti-vaccination campaigns have been necessarily bad, that there are some cases where it's been a force to actually improve public health by getting a a better, safer version of a vaccine on the market instead of what was used previously. Um, What do you think is the sort of difference between them? Just at first glance, it looks like the, the media furore wasn't the same around these actual cases.
2: So you're right. I mean, I think there is a role for consumerism in vaccines. I think the public can't ask for, in fact, demand safer vaccines. I think that's fu- fine. I think that's fair. And, and the, the example that I use in the book is John Salamone, whose son suffered permanent harm from the oral polio vaccine. His point of view was, hey, there's a, there's a different vaccine. There's an inactivated polio vaccine. It's been used in other countries to eliminate polio from those countries, specifically Scandinavian countries. Why didn't I know about this? How come my doctor didn't tell me about this? And why, frankly, don't we use this that vaccine here? Those were all perfectly reasonable questions because they were based in science, as distinct from, for example, those who said you need to make a safer whooping cough vaccine because this whooping cough vaccine causes permanent brain damage, or it didn't cause permanent brain damage, or you need to make a safer MMR vaccine, or separate the MMR vaccines because that vaccine causes autism when it wasn't true. I mean, those aren't vaccine safety activists because. Their contention isn't based in science. If you look at, for example, you know the National Vaccine Information Center or Meryl Dorsey, Dorsey's uh, Autism Vaccination Network or, you know, JAB, if you look on their websites, they say that vaccines cause many chronic ills of man, autism, diabetes, multiple sclerosis, attention deficit disorder, learning disabilities, you name it, and, and that's not true. According to them, you can never make vaccines that don't cause those problems because
0: they didn't cause those problems to begin with of course you've just written a head-to-head for us where you can argue very convincingly i think for mandatory childhood vaccination before school but in your book you've got examples of kind of mandatory vaccination before care where some family doctors have said we'll only accept you as patients if you've had the full vaccine schedule that the cdc recommends but you said at the beginning you didn't really agree with that approach why is that
2: I I don't think there's an easy answer to this. Um, In many ways, I think the doctor is put in a lose-lose situation. On the one hand, if the doctor says, okay, I'll do the best I can, I'll, I'll play it your way, you know, we'll space out or delay or separate or withhold vaccines, I'll just do the best I can to get you the vaccines you need, realizing that when you do that, you are putting a child at unnecessary risk you're increasing the period of time during which they're going to be susceptible to vaccine-preventable diseases, some of which are starting to come back, measles, whooping cough. But on the other hand, if you say to the parent, look, I can't see you, Uh, if you can't get vaccines according to the recommended schedule, we can't see you, then what happens? I mean, presumably the child goes somewhere else where they're perfectly willing to do it that way or to a chiropractor who's perfectly willing not to give any vaccine. My wife, who's a general pediatrician, I mean, I watched her go through this. She sort of went the full spectrum. I mean, she started off in her practice just trying to do whatever she could to get parents to move from darkness into light and to get the vaccines that could protect their children. And then she would had it. You know, she just was spending a lot of time doing it. She found she wasn't terribly convincing. And she said, look, let me love your child. You're asking me to take care of your child. And at the same time, you're asking me to practice substandard care. The fact of the matter is these vaccines are recommended for a reason. And when you're asked me to practice substandard care that could result in harm, I can't in good conscience send your child out of this office knowing, for example, in Philadelphia that we had three children die of hemophilus influenza type B meningitis. or we had massive measles epidemics in the early 1990s. Um, you know, or we've had a mumps epidemic in the Northeast. I can't do it. She was actually much more convincing that way. Because, because in a sense, when you say, okay, let's just do it your way, you're tacitly agreeing that that's okay. And she felt she went convincing about 25% of people to more like 75% of people.
0: Great. Well, thank you very much, Paul, for taking time to talk to me.
2: Sure, Duncan. so so we'll fight the good fight.
0: And Paul's book is available from all your handy online book retailers. Now, in a month when David Cameron has said dementia care is a national crisis and he's making it one of his personal priorities – We've published a paper from the Netherlands which looks at the effectiveness of dementia follow-up care by either memory clinics or general practitioners. BMJ Deputy Editor Trish Groves speaks to the authors.
3: Professor Older Rickert, thanks very much for telling us more about your study that was recently published in the BMJ. It's about memory clinics for people with dementia and it would be really helpful to know what sort of pathway someone newly diagnosed with dementia in the Netherlands would be expected to follow.
1: Yes, sure. I'm pleased to. So, in the Netherlands, the GPs are well-structured and they have their own standard of care for dementia for cognitive problems, but they are very reluctant in making a diagnosis of dementia. And that's often a reason to refer a patient for proper diagnosis to a memory clinic. A quarter of the patients across the Netherlands who receive the diagnosis of dementia is diagnosed in a memory clinic. And we, in our um, trial, had nine memory clinics included, and as such they're, um, I think, um, a good example of how memory clinics are functioning in the Netherlands, and we think that it's also reasonably an example of how in Western European countries memory clinics are functioning.
3: Right, so in the randomised trial that you've just published in the BMJ, what was the research question?
1: Well, the research question was whether it was more effective to be guided by memory clinics compared to GPs in the first period after diagnosis compared to quality of life of the patients and caregiver stress.
3: So it was, it was very down-to-earth and pragmatic and very close to real life?
1: Yeah, we were very much interested whether it was really beneficial for patients and caregivers to visit a memory clinic, not just from the perspective of, let's say, quality of care from a medical point of view, because we were just at the point for decision-making, do we get memory clinics all over the country to get everybody into a memory clinic? So that was the reason to, to make a research proposal to fuel the, the policymakers makers and also to add a cost-effectiveness part.
3: So can you tell us what the patients randomised to the different parts of the trial actually were offered in terms of care and treatment? So uh, first of all, in the memory clinics, what did the participants get there?
1: Yeah, that's a very good question. What is the intervention, in fact, in the study, and what's the comparison? Well, the intervention um, is based on the... National guideline on dementia care which is a medical specialist guideline and in it there's a part of let's say the the drug treatment of dementia and the dementia subtypes and also there's a part of the non pharmacological treatments so they were offered both sides of treatment of dementia specified to the n- dementia type and also um, added, of course, there was the educational parts to get the information, the instruction for patients and caregivers to to get proper guidance. And the GPs received, in fact, an instruction that the patients were randomized and that they were taking part in the study. And they were um, suggested to just give their regular care according to the GP standard of care also did a process analysis and followed what they did, and we were, uh, in fact, a bit surprised that uh, a considerable amount of patients, let's say 80% of the patients, also received drugs for Alzheimer's disease, so the cholinesterase inhibitors were also prescribed by the GPs in, in a high number of patients, and they also added uh, non-pharmacological treatments so, there were rather big differences, for instance, when focusing on the drug treatments. Uh, much more patients, many more patients stopped the drug treatment after a very short while, and they changed often from the one drug to the other, while in the memory clinics, the carefully selected drugs were started, and they much more stayed on the same drug. So, these kind of differences could be noticed as uh, part of the intervention.
3: Right. And was there a difference in the amount of contact with uh, professionals in the two arms of the trial? So, I mean, how often did the patients go to the memory clinic, for instance?
1: Yeah. the patients visited the memory clinics uh, on average uh, three times during the year with uh, a large spread in it. And they also visited the GP, but primarily for other problems, not directly dementia. While in the GP arm, they had considerably more visits eight visits during the year with the GPs.
3: Yes and what did you find what did the what did the trial conclude?
1: Well the surprising result was that there in fact was no statistical difference on the primary endpoints the the quality of life as judged for the uh, dementia patients and there was also not a difference in caregiver burden. So the primary endpoints didn't show a difference. Um, In secondary endpoints, there were some differences and it seemed as if the caregivers guided uh, by the GP had a bit less stress and anxiety. The primary uh, conclusion for us was that in fact, the quality of care for dementia during the first year is not really different different from memory clinics to a well structured GP guidance.
3: Yes, and and this is for people with um, mild to moderate dementia, isn't it? Yeah, this for mild to
1: moderate dementia. They were having a clinical dementia rating on average of one. In fact, they resemble, I think, the stage of let's say after diagnosis till a few years after diagnosis because.
3: What should policymakers do, um, having looked at the results of your trial?
1: Yeah, that's a very good question. Thank you. And I think that policymakers um, can really have advantage of it because now it's more or less the idea that uh, best care should be provided by general practice and that it's much cheaper than in hospital care. Well, that's not true. That's too simple, and I think policymakers can now rely on data and suggest that patient preference is a very important thing and can also fuel the choice in dementia care, because really the standard of care in both arms is good, and patient preferences may be guiding. And the second thing I would like to stress is that policymakers can also use the similar quality of care to advocate and to stimulate hospitals and general practitioners to collaborate and to join their forces and try to escape from the gap between hospital and general practice.
3: There's one last thing that policymakers worry about and that is cost but you do have data on the costs of the two services don't you?
1: Yeah the memory clinics were not more expensive than general practice care in that respect it doesn't make a difference for policymakers they should not be uh, stressed by patients going to hospital for this type of guidance. And again, patient preference may be leading.
3: Well, it's fascinating stuff and it's, um, it's certainly going to make policymakers think, I'm sure. Thank you very much, Professor Older-Rickett.
0: Thank you. And that paper is online on bmj.com. And if you're interested in dementia, the BMJ Group has now launched its Dementia Portal, where the latest articles concerning the condition from the BMJ, the Journal of Neurology, Neurosurgery and Psychiatry, and many others, can be found. That's all for this week. Next week is the return of Risky Business, not the Tom Cruise film, but the inspirational Patient Safety Conference held in London. We'll be reporting from there. Join us then.